Great, great reminder, isn't it? But ask that you take your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 4. The lectionary continues in the, the account of the physician's very detailed report as he goes and, and finds out what happened and, and went undoubtedly to talk to Mary and to John and others to, to give his report of the gospel. And of course, we are deep in the season of Epiphany, the season where we study the wisdom of Jesus Christ, both by what he says and what he does, how he lives and what it is we are to be doing as we follow his, his course. We're going to start with the 14th verse in just a moment of Luke chapter 4. There's a tendency in the individualism that we have here in the Western world, and especially here in the United States, to think that we should read the Bible by ourselves and for ourselves and with only ourselves. Uh, there's nothing wrong, of course, with that. Individual Bible study is a, a very important part of the spiritual discipline. But it's significant to me, as I watch how Jesus lived his life, that nowhere in the Gospels do we find Jesus going off by himself to read the Bible. We find him often going off by himself to pray to spend time with God, to connect with Him. But perhaps Bible study, uh, the study of the Word of God, is best done in community, with mind sharpening mind, with heart pulling on heart. You see, it is significant that we are all gathered together here today. We have gathered to study God's Word, to put God in the place of greatest worth in our lives, to express it together in unison as we sing words of songs that remind us who God is and who we are and why we're here as we pray for one another in this. But it's interesting that Jesus, by example, as was his custom, which meant it was what he did when the Sabbath came around, he went with his mom and his dad to the synagogue. And synagogue is just the Greek word for congregation. It means he got together with his congregation to study the Word of God. And the truth is that if all we needed was information, we could get far more information if we all stayed home and went on the Internet. We could get all kinds of information. But what we need is God speaking to us through one another, through his teachers, through the conversations through the Bible studies, as we gather together. And in a corollary way, who we gather with matters deeply in what we believe and, and how we come to believe it. How our specific community will either reinforce and support how we understand and interpret God's words, or on the other hand, how our chosen community that we spend time with and listen to will either deny and negate what the Word of God says. In other words, it's very important, our choice of who we spend time with in studying the Word of God or in not studying the Word of God. We will, in fact, become products to a great extent of that community with which we've chosen to surround ourselves. Earlier, we read a psalm of David. And we read it together in United Voices because 
as we listen to the truth, as we say it to one another, it becomes something that is imprinted in our minds. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to, to say again a portion of the psalm that we did. And I want you to listen deeply to the words being spoken. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear or worship of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much pure gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. And you can open your eyes. That was a song. It was a song. The psalms are songs that were sung in worship by the synagogue, by the congregations of God, down now for thousands and thousands of years. It's a simple song. It's a, a community song. It's a song that affirms truth. It's a song that affirms experience. It's a song that allows us to recognize what God has done and will do as he's given us how to live life. And so when the rabbis would open the books of the law or would teach the precepts of the prophets or would learn the lessons of the historians, the people listened and they, they listened in order to trust and obey that God is speaking to them and that this is the way that leads to life. This is the way that gives us truth. This morning we want to explore this whole reality that reading scripture together in the faith community, trusting and obeying what God is saying to us will allow us to experience a depth that transforms us. It's not just simply listening to something that's interesting and then we live a life that is not connected to what we've heard. It's something that allows us to have that ongoing experience with God. As Christians, of course, our scriptures include more than what Jesus studied when he was in the synagogues. In his congregation, it was the progressive revelation of the Old Testament, this wonderful journey of the people of God. We, of course, have the story of Jesus and his disciples and the early church, uh, the climax of this wonderful revelation in the incarnation of our Lord. So we want to go to this Luke chapter 4, and we want to to spend time in God's word. What, what does Jesus say to us about what we should value and how we should live our lives? So it's Luke chapter 4. We're going to start with verse 14 and go through verse 21. And the NIV translators put over this portion of scripture, Jesus rejected at Nazareth. Now Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. 
he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the congregation were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Keep that open before you and let's pray. Father, today, we want to fulfill this scripture in our lives. Please speak to each of us. You know where we are on this wonderful journey. You know what the next step is for each of us. You know what the future is going to hold. You know what society and the world are going to do. Be with us as your people. Help us do and be what you want us to be. And we will give you all glory and all praise and all honor. Amen. Now it's not at all obvious to a person within a specific faith community that their reading of the scripture is in part a creation of their belonging to that specific community. From their own participation in the discussions and Bible studies to the input of every person who then chooses to join that community to the subsequent conversations and questions and concerns and values to the impact of other groups that all of us are a part of and that influence the values and the way we think and the way we read to the individual choices that each of us make to live a holy life or to not, and on and on. There is a dynamic that creates what our church and every church is and what it means to be a part of that worshiping community. And each of us in each of those unique communities comes to understand the truth in the way that that community expresses it. Now, I won't go into this in depth. You may want to... Uh, uh, do some more study in how uh, values are created and how beliefs come to be and what it means to, to understand uh, different words and different categories. But I want to just mention a couple of things for you. If we left Jesus out of the equation, and we're not going to, thankfully, he's the center of the equation, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But if we were to leave Jesus out of the equation... And just simply say, okay, what does the human product of being a part of a group of people produce? How does our interaction produce who we become and how we see ourselves within our lives? How would we know what we know? What, what is it that we know? Well, I'm going to give you just two very, very quick examples. Uh, first from social psychology and then the second one from neurology. Social psychology has a lot to say about how we form from the social group to our individual psyche and the way we think. It speaks in terms of conformity, 
false, cons false consensus, choice shifts, and each of those very fascinating uh, ways they impact us. But one that causes a great deal of difficulty is group think. We see it all the time in the media, all the time in our society. Group think is a phenomenon of uncritical agreement in which we let the leader, perhaps it's a pastor, uh, perhaps it's a theologian, a tele-evangelist, a Bible study leader, we let the leader have such a place of unquestioned authority in our group that we agree with whatever they say simply so we can belong. This means, of course, that as a group, we are only as reliable as our leader. And so you can think of many groups within our society and what the leader says and the group think that forms around them that's uncritical of the assumptions they make about life or solutions or what's true or what's not true. Now that's only, only one area of social psych and there's lots more you can, you can read into that, but it's a true, true part of what makes us who we are. Second, from the study of neurology, uh, the formation of what do you believe and why do you believe it? What, what's your values and how do you value that? What, why does that become important to you? We find in, in very recent studies, you know, I've, I've talked to you about the decade of the brain and the decades of the mind, you know, the 1990s and the 2000 to 2010. We've studied a lot of how the brain functions and why it functions in the way it does. And we've come to understand that the brain releases dopamine. Now, dopamine is simply the thing that makes you feel good. You, you're happy uh, that you're in this place or in that. It's a pleasure uh, feeling. Why the brain releases dopamine in particular values more so than others when we experience them. There are three primary experiences that we have that are neurological. The first, as is true in all of life and in Maslow's need hierarchy and all the other things, is simply one of risk versus safety. Being in a safe group is extremely important to human beings and it allows us to then be able to think and to belong. Unless our brain is broken and a brain can be broken by some addiction where the brain simply seeks a neurological hit so that you get some pleasure from an outside substance. Unless the brain is broken, the normal person feels at home in safety. But the second two have to do with community even in a more uh, formative way. How the others in our community treat us and how do we stand within the social structure of that group. If, for example, in our community we're liked and we like what other people like and we experience then great pleasure of being amongst our like kind of people. In our social connection, as the dopamine feels that prefrontal cortex, we begin to feel happy that we are liked. Similarly, in the third area, if we're respected within the group that we're a part of, if we're esteemed by our community, then our brain is designed to release dopamine and we feel good about our place in that community. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. You're thinking, now, what does all this have to do with Jesus going to his hometown church and reading these words of Isaiah? How does community impact the way he 
and we read scripture. Well, this is where I find it fascinating, this interplay between our biology and our sociology and our spirituality, that they come together to produce who we are. Because we don't leave Jesus out of the equation. We're not just the result of the human interactions that we're a part of. The church is not just a human organization. It's the family of God in which Jesus Christ is the head providing all that neurological functioning for the entire body of the Christ people, of Christ's body on earth. And so if we are more than groupthink or dopamine-controlled uh, biological beings, it's because Jesus himself is a part of making us who we are in this great spiritual uh, control over the whole of who we are. If Jesus himself saw himself only from a human perspective, he would have simply been a poor carpenter's son of an undeveloped uh, area of the world, and he would have just wanted to get along. But that's not who Jesus is. Similarly, we should not see ourselves as simply the product of our dysfunctional family of origin or our broken society or any kind of addicted neurologies. We are God's children, created and made by him to accomplish something far greater than this biological, social, neurological uh, functioning in life. But there is something, of course, very much going on then in Jesus' synagogue and in any church community. There is a Redeemer who lifts us from this world to the world that is to be from this self to the self that he created and intended. There is a redeemer that goes far beyond these closed biological, social, and theological systems to create new communities of free and whole and healthy people. So we want to go back to the moment when Jesus goes to his own home congregation, to his own uh, synagogue. And he goes back there because that's where he grew up. That's where he's best known from a human perspective. And he's given a scroll by the prophet of the prophet Isaiah. And he specifically, we're told, rolls through it until he finds the messianic statements, the messianic text that's talking about the Messiah who is to come. And then he reads in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now notice in this that he begins, of course, by distinguishing himself from the group. And he speaks of what God has done for him. And of course, he's therefore speaking of what God has done for me and for you. It is true, as I just explained, that God created us to experience great pleasure when we're a part of a group and we belong and we're esteemed within that group. But that becomes dangerous if we do not have that transcendent relationship with the living God who defines us beyond any kind of group experience. And he allows us by the anointing of his spirit that is upon every individual, all Christians are anointed, uh, 
by the Spirit of God to become the individual that we need to be in the church, in the community that is forming us and we're forming, but also in the larger world that he wants us to transform into his truth and his likeness. So Jim, Jesus demonstrates, first of all, in his own home church, that we need to be connected to God, to not let any group define us. God defines us. And then the group influences and reinforces and supports who God has created us to be as we become the whole person in him. And second, we notice what it is that Jesus was called to do and therefore calls us to do as his body of Christ. To proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now think about each of those. The poor have no social status. In our society, their dopamine is low. They often medicate their minds because of the pain of not being esteemed by the people with whom they share their life. Jesus came to proclaim good news, gospel, a renewed value that God loves them and died for them and cares for them and that they have value of infinite worth. We have come to care for the poor. Similarly, he has come to the imprisoned. Now, we can be imprisoned in a whole variety of ways. The neurologically broken, the legally broken, the physically, financially impaired, the sexually, financially enslaved, the actual incarnation, incarceration of prisoners. Jesus has come, he said, and we are therefore in the process of redeeming and setting the prisoner free to lift them out of whatever social or biological or spiritual or physical prison and set them on solid rock to give them life. Let them have it in the wonderful free men and free women of the family of God. He goes on and says that he's come to take whatever blindness and oppression is impairing a person. And he's come to give them sight and empowerment so that they can receive the belonging and the value that is to give them joy physically and socially, neurologically and spiritually. To give them pleasure of body, mind, and soul as they experience the love of Jesus Christ and the love of and acceptance of and care of his people, his church, his congregation. Now I can think of no better description of the community of the congregation that I want to be a part of and that we are striving very hard to be as the people of God. The question is, do we allow Jesus to define our values and do we orient ourselves around him and his truth or do we read the scriptures from a different perspective? Do we follow Jesus's definition of what it means to be the people of God or, or 
are we following some other definition? And if so, where did we get that? Have we limited in some way the life of the church and our own individual ministries such that the poor and the oppressed and the blind and the imprisoned aren't on our radar, not a part of our concern, not a part of our, our welcome and, and allowing God to, to care for them and that they become free from all of that. It's interesting that in the verses that continued, if we were to read on, we have a very difficult moment when Jesus calls his home church on their expectations of who he is and why he came and explains that he is so much more than they want to limit him to be. And so often that's the case. Our home church doesn't allow us to be all that we're to be because they haven't seen the growth that God is doing. It's in the wonderful community of God that we grow. Their response is very telling when they try to limit him. And he says, no, I'm not that, I'm, I'm this. They violently reject him. That's almost always the case of a community that's not willing to value what Jesus values. They not only reject Jesus, but they reject the people of God who are valuing what Jesus values rather than what the world values or how the world lives its life. Jesus goes on from there and in the very next chapter, in chapter 5, he begins to form this true community that allows him and us to be what God has created us to be as he invites Peter and James and John to journey with him in this life, this life of faith, this life of the church. Now there is, there is no doubt that you and I are going to be affected by the people with whom we've cho chosen to share our life, in whatever way we share our life with them. I've often thought that there are so many people who are taking their shared life from those which speak often very violently and virulently on TV. They hear that far more than the silence of God's word and the study of his truth and the Bible studies of his people and the teachings of the faith. If we came here today because we want to follow Jesus and he's our Messiah, our leader, sustainer of our faith, if we are filled by the Holy Spirit, letting the Holy Spirit guide us and convict us and empower us, if we are all living up to the anointing of the Holy Spirit that has come upon each of us, then together we can be a safe and a just and a redeeming community of God. We can be a place where every person who is in any way broken or enslaved can come and can be set free. And we can be a people of God in which there is an ever-present Spirit of God that every person that becomes a part of us experiences God in a new and transformative way. We can set the captives free. We can heal the broken. We can bring light to the darkness, power to the powerless. Over these years, Pastor Colleen and I have had the honor of having these welcoming lunches as newcomers become a part of us. And we have listened to hundreds and hundreds of stories 
of how God is at work and what caused them to bring this person to this family of God. And I'd have to tell you, none of them are alike. They're all different in the way God works in our lives. But all of them are following the same Lord. They're seeking the same one, the Redeemer, the Messiah that comes upon us. It's my prayer that we as the people of God, that this family of Jesus Christ, doing the work of God through the power of God, with the support of God's people, it's my prayer that we will be a true synagogue, a true congregation that is safe, that is just, and that is redeeming. Let's spend time with the Lord who is head of our church. Let's pray.